So I have here an assortment of tools. And you can tell some of what it is that you're doing for a job by the tools that are at hand. In my very organized toolbox here, in this top box, I have a multimeter. I have a soldering iron. Can't actually use this, my hands are too shaky. I've got some strippers, I've got a voltage tester, multicolored electrical tape. You can tell by the tools that are in this top box that if I'm using them, that if I have this box out, I'm doing electrical work, right? Fanciest toolbox ever. I was so pleased when I got this. <coughs> the next box down has a different assortment of tools. Got some pipe tape, a pipe wrench, one of those cutters for pecs. Man, that stuff is awesome. It's an entirely different assortment of tools for an entirely different purpose. But if I'm going to change an outlet, this tool is not going to do me any good. I, I'm not going to be successful at that job that I've set out to do because I've got the wrong tool. In the same way, if I'm going to fix a leaky faucet, this isn't really going to do me any good, right? It's the wrong tool for that job. And if I've set out with the wrong tool, I'm going to have a hard time getting that job done. Now just hang on to that image for a minute. That one was still kind of dirty. Uh, so last week, we saw a little bit about how this group of people called the Pharisees were looking for and were building essentially a kingdom that, it was, that was based on human performance. If you follow all the rules, if you do all the things that you're supposed to do, you're good to go. The Romans, the ruling political power at the time, had a different kingdom, right? They had a kingdom that was based on, on power and on military might and on exploiting the, the peoples that they had conquered. And we saw how Christ was building something. He was building a kingdom that was based not on human performance, not on power, not on might, not on riches, but a kingdom that was based on the steadfast love of God, the hesed, steadfast love of God. And God had given Israel this tool to help them understand and experience that, that steadfast love. He had given them the Sabbath as a way to, to experience that just for one day a week. Now the Pharisees had taken that and they had twisted what God had given them to intend to demonstrate his steadfast love and promote human flourishing. And instead they had used it as an excuse to further human suffering. They had taken a good gift from God and were using it to oppress people. And Jesus draws this very clear distinction between what, is, what he is holding up as the purpose and intention of the Sabbath and what the Pharisees are holding up as the purpose of the Sabbath. To do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? And he demonstrates his power and his authority and his ability to make those claims by healing this man's hand by the power of his word. And in doing so, he asserts his authority 
as the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and therefore Lord over all the rest of creation. And we're going to pick up uh, in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. On the uh, black Bibles in the uh, pews in front of you, it is on page 862. Luke 6, starting in verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We're going to stop right there for a minute, uh, because there's a, a couple of things that that we need to see here. And the first and probably the most convicting to me is the role that prayer continually, continually pray, played in Jesus's life, right? So as, as Christians, uh, we've been given this, um, this historical understanding of who God is in the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three different persons, one substance, one essence, one mind, and one will. Uh, eternally in perfect relationship with one another, in harmony and unity with one another. And if that's a little bit confusing for you, join the club. It's very well established. It's existed for several thousand years. We've got jackets. Um, But what we need to see there is that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully 100% God. But he is also fully 100% man. And despite the fact that in his deity, he was the fullness of God, he was of the same substance as the Father, he still relied on the relationship that he had with his heavenly Father during his time here on earth. He didn't need anything from him, but he rejoiced in and he relied on that eternal relationship between the other members of the Trinity. And he frequently spent these long periods of time in prayer. So in him, the fullness of God, it says, was pleased to dwell. He was completely full of all of the power, all of the deity of God, but yet he spends the night praying to his heavenly father before these big moments in his life. And so if he needed, if he needed that time of prayer, really, where do I get off trying to do things in my own power? Because that's a constant temptation for me. I'll I'll just level with you. Something happens, a problem occurs, something goes well, something goes poorly. My natural temptation is is to try and fix it, try and rejoice in it in my own power. So there's a problem. I got this. I can fix problems. I'm good at fixing problems. Something goes wrong. Okay. I can fix this. I can make this right. That's my natural tendency. And I think that that betrays, in those moments, the way that my heart is twisted. It is deviant. The way that my heart seeks for itself, seeks for the flesh, seeks to glorify me rather than glorifying my Father in heaven. But Christ's example that he gives us here is that he is 
100% reliant on, dependent on the power and the strength that comes from the Father through the Holy Spirit. So I was convicted by that. Um, but after, after this time of prayer, after this time of prayer, Christ, Christ goes and chooses his apostles, these 12 men. Uh, and, and he names them apostles here. And that, that word means sent out ones. Um, we don't really have a, the same sort of idea here, but maybe ambassadors come as the, as the closest parallel for us. But they are ambassadors that are not just sent to communicate, but they are ambassadors that are sent and empowered with the full authority and the power of the one who has sent them. So that the king would send an ambassador on a, on a ship across the sea to a distant land. And in doing so, the words of that ambassador carried the full weight of the words of that king. And so if the ambassador said, we will do this, then that was what they would do. That's the idea of, of an apostle. And so as apostles, Christ is giving these men the authority and the responsibility and ultimately the privilege to speak for him and to act for him in the world, to build his kingdom. However, these are not kingdom builders. If you're trying to build a kingdom, these are the wrong tools. It's the wrong tool for the job. All 12 of these guys, right? You've got, if you're trying to build a kingdom, you want people who are powerful. You want people who are influential. You want people who are rich. You want military leaders. But these 12 guys, they're rough. They're unknown. They're nobodies. At least a third of them, if not more, they were just fishermen. You had a tax collector in Matthew who was a Roman collaborator. He had sold out his people for money to the Romans. And then you've got uh, uh, the zealot, right? Simon, who was called the zealot. And this was a political party that thought that all of those collaborators should be taken out and metaphorically shot. <laughs> Didn't do that in those days, but you get the picture. Right? This was not a group of people that was engineered to, to be this well-oiled machine to take this news about Jesus into the nations. They were not the right tools for the job from an earthly perspective. Nobody on earth would look at that group of people and say, man, if I was going to pick 12 guys to take this message to the nations, they would be it. But, but, it was not about the skills or the power or the authority that they had in and of themselves. But rather, in their role as apostles, it was 100% about the power and the authority of the king who was sending them. If the king sends an ambassador, if the king who sends an ambassador is powerful, then that ambassador can be short and scrawny and poorly spoken. But when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of that great and powerful king. So through these weak and imperfect men, God would spread the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pick back up in verse 17. And he came, to, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. 
with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now there's some similarities here to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, um, I think it's five through seven-ish. Um, and it could have been the same event that's recorded here. It also could have been a different event. Um, ultimately, it doesn't really make that much difference because the context and the result were the same. The crowds were coming to hear him and to be healed. So you have this, this preaching, this proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. And then at the same time, you've got this, the healing, the ushering in the reality of the kingdom, demonstrating the values of the kingdom, demonstrating the power of the kingdom. And so in healing these people, Jesus is, is essentially doing the same thing that God had done with the Sabbath for Israel. He was giving them a small taste, a foretaste, an appetizer of what it was that this kingdom was all about. And he said he was going to do this. Right? If you remember back in uh, Luke 4, when he began his public ministry, he read from the prophet Isaiah and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So you have this, this proclamation of this good news that's accompanied by the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's not just proclaiming the kingdom, he's not just telling them about it, but he's helping them to begin experiencing just a small taste of what that kingdom is like, what it is that that kingdom is about. Because a proclaimed kingdom without, without some experience of that is so difficult for us to understand. And I think that, that God in his mercy and his grace towards us has given us as a people that, that little taste, that little foretaste of what it is that his kingdom is about and what it is that, he's, that it is like. And this is why our example as Christians and as a church is so incredibly important. Because we are called as believers to constantly be welcoming the people around us, uh, both believers and unbelievers, into our lives. Not the, the, the shined up, polished, uh, you know, sort of Facebook version of ourselves, but the real, true version of ourselves. The rough edges and all, which requires some vulnerability from us. But in doing so, we're inviting people to take a front row seat to the miracle that God is working in each one of our lives. The way that he is making each one of us more and more like Jesus as time goes by. And as we do that, that you, the world around us also gets to see the way that, um, that the bonds that hold us together as believers, the way that the bonds hold us together as a church, um, do so despite every earthly reason uh, that we have to pull away from one another. And when we live together in that way as believers, we demonstrate the strength and the power of the gospel. When we show one another the grace and the patience and the love that God has shown us, we are demonstrating to each other and to a watching world that there is something greater. 
that there is something higher, something stronger at work within us than the powers that are at work within the world. It's also important to see the places that these people came from. If you go back to um, it's the end of verse 17, he says, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. So we have these places within the, what used to be the nation of Israel. And then also the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Those places are not a part of what would have been considered Judea at that point. They weren't a part of what was considered the nation of Israel back in, back in the golden years of, of David and Solomon. Tyre and Sidon were never a part of the nation of Israel. They were Gentile cities. They were not a part of God's covenant people. But yet, here they are being healed. Here they are being cured. Here they are with the evil spirits coming out of them. Christ has come to the, not just to the Jewish nation, not just to the people of Abraham, but to the Gentiles too, to the whole world. Now the Pharisees would have known something about this, right? Because back in Genesis 12, when God is talking to Abraham, when he's promising blessing on him, he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise that God made to Abraham contained a blessing for all of the nations of the earth that was going to come through Abraham. And in Isaiah 19, uh, God promised that in that day, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So there is, a, there is something coming here that goes beyond the promises that, that God had made to the nation of Israel. And instead, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of these promises that God would bless the entire earth, all people, through the nation of Israel. And the Pharisees understand, understood a, a bit about this, right? They, they believed that God would raise Israel up through the Messiah in such a way that the nations would see it and, and would worship God. They understood that God would be doing something good for the world through Israel, but they didn't grasp the fullness, right? They didn't see how big that blessing was going to be. Because Jesus didn't come to fulfill the hopes that Israel had for casting off Roman's, Roman rule. He didn't come to advance the prospects of any one earthly nation. Rather, what we saw back in, in Luke 5, when he said, those who, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the mission and purpose of Christ was never about advancing Jewish political prospects. It wasn't about acquiring power or wealth or might. 
It wasn't to enable the Jewish people to lead easy, comfortable lives. It wasn't about you reaching all of your goals and all of your hopes and having all of your dreams fulfilled. But rather, the role and the purpose of Christ was to be the physician to those who were dead in their sins. To be the one who calls a sinful world to repentance and faith. As it says in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Because the problem remember, was not that Israel had fallen to Rome, but that mankind had fallen to sin. The problem was not that people could no longer see the glory of God, but the problem was that they had seen the glory of God and they had rejected it. And that rejection comes with consequences. We saw that in the fall in Genesis 3. The broken relationship between God and man and the broken relationship between man and wife. We saw that in the difficult, toilsome work that that we were promised. And we saw that in the promise of death. We saw that in the just reward that was handed down on sinful man for our rebellion against him. Because rebellion against our creator, rejection of him, that penalty is nothing less than death. The entire world lived under that death sentence because of our sin. But in the middle of that fallenness, in the middle of that brokenness, in the middle of that death, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So in the middle of the death of all mankind, God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, it says in John 3, but in order that the world might be saved through him, And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, came to seek and to save the lost, to bring life to those who were dead in their sins, to those who love the darkness of their evil works rather than the light of his righteousness. And he calls all people everywhere to repent of those sins, to leave behind the stain and the shame of their sin, and to place their full hope and faith and love and trust in him. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, powerful or weak, beggars to kings and emperors to slaves, to every single man and woman, he calls us to repent of our sins and to place our trust in him. And out of those who respond, out of those who repent, out of those who place their faith in him, he is building his kingdom. And it's this kingdom that we see in Revelation 7, where John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So in our repentance and in our faith, we are brought into this kingdom that is not based on our skill, that is not based on our intelligence, that is not based on our charisma or our checkbooks. It's not in our ethnicity, our nationality, our skin color. It's not based on how we vote or how we think or how well we conform to any set of behavior or rules or any other way that the world would seek to divide or to define us. But we are brought into a kingdom that is based entirely on something that is outside of our or any man's control or influence. We are brought into a kingdom that is based on the steadfast, unchanging love of God. And it's easy enough for us to see that, to see the value of of this kingdom, to see the value of the king, and to believe that we are not good enough. I don't, I don't deserve to be a part of this. I can't be a part of this. I'm not the right tool for the job. I've got no place in the kingdom. But what we see here is that these apostles, the absolute wrong tools for the job, were sent out. But they were sent out not proclaiming themselves because they, they were nothing. They had nothing to proclaim. They weren't proclaiming their own power because they didn't have any. They weren't proclaiming their own wisdom or their own righteousness because they had none. But what were they sent to proclaim? They were sent to proclaim Christ. They were not advancing themselves. They were not advancing their own agenda, but they were advancing Christ and his agenda. And their faithful obedience to their call ended in most cases, as best we can tell, by their deaths. We don't see that written in the Bible, but in the traditions of the early church, well, we see Judas killed himself after he betrayed Jesus. We see James killed in Jerusalem. But the tradition of the church says that aside from John, every other one of those apostles died. A violent, painful death following after this commission that they were given by Christ. Now the wisdom of the world and the fear of the human heart would say we've got to protect these messengers. We've got to preserve them. We've got to make sure that nothing happens to them. The wisdom of the world would see them leveraging their status and their power for their own gain to live a comfortable life. But instead, what they did was they went out to the four corners of the world, enduring suffering and hardship, being tortured and ultimately losing their lives to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. From the world's perspective, this is foolishness. This is wasteful. This is dumb. But this is the pattern. This is the pattern of God at work in this world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross of, cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So for these men, for these 12 apostles, it was not in spite of their weakness or in spite of their foolishness or in spite of their nothingness that God used them, but rather it was through their weakness. It was through the fact that they were nothing that he used them. God did everything that he could in choosing these 12 apostles to stack the deck against himself. Yet he still succeeded. Because that's the pattern that we see. We see God choosing and using and succeeding, using the most unlikely people so that he would get the glory. Right, so if you're, going to, if you're going to start a new nation that is going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, you're probably not going to choose a, an octogenarian who has never had any children. That's foolishness. It's ridiculous. But that's what he did. So that he would get the glory for that. We saw that in the story of Gideon, right? In, in the book of Judges. Where you have Gideon with this army. And God says, no. Your army's too big. Not your army's too small. Not they're untrained. No, it's too big. You got too many people here. And he takes 30,000 some odd men. And brings it down to 300 then God says, yeah, that's the right number. That's the number that you're supposed to have. So that it's perfectly clear to yourselves and to the people around you that it's not your little army here who did this. But it's me. We saw that in Samuel. We saw that in David. He doesn't give the word of his kingdom into the hands of the wise or the rich or the powerful. He doesn't give it to the mighty, to the clever, but he gives it to the weak, the poor, and the nobodies. But a nobody who carries the weight and the authority of the king over all creation is no longer a nobody. 
These men were no longer nobodies, but they were apostles of the king. Sent out ones, given the power, given the authority, given the commission to bring the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ into all of the world. And this is what, friends, we are called to carry on today. We are called to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom based on the steadfast love of God our Savior. And in response to that steadfast love that he has loved us with, we love him in response. In response to God's love for us, we also love the people around us that he loves. And then, because of that great love with which he has loved us, we carry on in the making of disciples. Not because we are any good, but because he is good. Not because you or I have anything to offer, but because he is everything that we need. Not because we are holding ourselves out as paragons of virtue or of, or of wisdom. It's not because we have it all figured out, because... We don't. And if you spend any amount of time with any one of us, you will see that. We don't have it figured out. But instead, what we do is we make disciples of Jesus Christ. We point people to him as the only unfailing, unfaltering, unchangeable living hope. This is what we are called to do. Because being a Christian isn't simply a matter of going to church or reading the Bible. It's not about fixing your errant behavior. But rather, being a follower of Jesus is about following. See, we see the light and the glory of his kingdom. We see the forgiveness of sins. We see the reconciliation of God, reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others. We see in his kingdom all of those things. And then we see the weakness, the darkness, the shame, the evil that exists within our own hearts. Those things that we have been following. And in that moment when we recognize the glory of God for what it is. And the darkness of our own hearts for what it is. We stop walking the way that we had been walking, and we turn. We stop walking this way, and we turn, and we follow after Christ. And we walk. We walk from where we are right now, wherever that is, whatever condition that is, and we follow after Jesus, because he is the light of the world. He is the bread from heaven that can satisfy our hunger. He is the living water that will satisfy our thirst. He is our great hope and our great savior. He is worthy of our love and our devotion. He is worthy of our entire lives. Because of that, because of that, we follow him. Now, as I am trying to follow and stumbling and falling and getting lost, needing to be redirected. I see other people around me who see his glory, who see his goodness, who see his light, who see his love, and they want to follow after him too. 
And as we all walk towards Jesus, we're all coming from different places, but we're all heading in the same direction. And that group of people who are following after Christ, who are seeking after him, however misguided they might be sometimes, however far they might stray sometimes, that is, that is the church, that is his body, that is the bride of Christ. And it is our duty, it is our responsibility and our privilege to encourage those people that we see walking alongside of us, those fellow travelers. And as we encourage them, they encourage us. And we teach each other, we help, each other, we help one another to grow and we show each other what it means to follow him. And that is what the entirety of the Christian life is. Each one of us walking, following after Jesus. And we've been blessed, friends. We've been blessed with the privilege of having people walk alongside of us so that they can encourage us and we can encourage them so that we might be the body of Christ. And someday, someday, that journey ends. And that journey for us ends, not in, not in death. That journey for us ends, not in failure. But that journey ends in the return of Christ, in the fulfillment of all of those hopes the fulfillment of all of those promises where we will no longer be walking after Christ, but we will be with him. We will see him. We will know him fully. We will see clearly on that day, as the song said earlier. This is our great hope. Not in being able to improve ourselves, not in being able to change ourselves, but our great hope is Christ. And if that if you have not chosen to follow him, I would call you, I would urge you, I would beg you, I would tell you that there is no greater joy, there is no greater hope, there is nothing in this world that is of any more importance than what we find in him. Walk alongside with me, come with me as we journey together pursuing our Savior. Let's pray. Father, you are truly my great hope. You know my heart. You know my past, my present, my future. You know me better than I know myself. And you know the condemnation that I deserve, condemnation that I live under. But Father, my hope is not in my ability to perform. My hope is not in what I can achieve. My hope is not in what I can fix. But Father, my hope is fully and completely in Jesus. And I thank you for the forgiveness that you have given me in him. I thank you that I can approach you now as a child rather than as an enemy. Father, I pray. I pray that you would be willing 
to use me, that you would give me the privilege of being used to spread the word of your kingdom, that you would use me as you use the apostles, regardless of what that means, regardless of what that costs me in earthly terms, because, Father, I believe that you could ask everything of me. And whatever I give up, whatever I lose, would not compare to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, that I pray. Amen. Thank you.